Welcome everyone. My name's Jamie Nemsis and welcome to Market Thinkers Series 3, Episode 4. As per usual, I'm joined by my business partner, Drew Meredith. Morning, Drew. Hi, mate. And our guest today is Chow Ma from Cooper's Investors. Hi, Chow. Hello. This series uh, is dedicated to the theme of retirement. As most people know, Drew and I run a, a Melbourne-based financial planning firm called Waddle Partners, and we specialise in retirement, so the theme fits incredibly well. The majority of our clients are post-60 and are in the last third of their life, and we've uh, built a real niche in building portfolios and relationships with clients that are in this space. We think it takes a unique uh, lens to look through building retirement portfolios and understanding them. And this series is all about exploring that further. Um, generally what we say in retirement is a, as, as, a, a, as a, a kind of a rule is we use a formula and it's a simple one. Um, total return equals income plus growth. So throughout this uh, series, what we've been talking about is either the income or the growth or the environment. And today is very much about the G, the growth. Um, Waddle Partners portfolios are constructed uh, in many ways, but one of the things that we want to do is obtain growth in retirement, not just income. And Drew and I and our, our Waddle portfolio has got two substantial overweights, and that is to global small cap companies and to uh, Asian equities. So today, Chow is going to talk about everything that her fund does and what Coopers believes in. And... Uh, demystify some of the white press or white noise that is happening about investing into Asia and it's especially China. So Drew, can you uh, lead off um, with the introduction to the session? Thanks, Jamie. I thought uh, yeah, we're talking about retirement, so it's kind of difficult. It can be difficult to get the concept of getting growth in. So I probably wanted to start in a dark place and talk about why you need growth in a retirement portfolio, which is the fact that no one knows when they're going to die. If you knew when you were going to die, you could invest with certainty and know how long your capital need to last. Last, But because we don't have that certainty, um, you need to ensure your capital is growing along with providing an income throughout your whole retirement. So the other flip side of that is an income approach in an environment where we're clearly going to see higher interest rates over the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years, not necessarily next year, um, just increases the importance of growing your capital and not just relying on a, on an income that could be falling. So, Well, uh, retirement's long too, isn't it? Exactly. You don't it's, know how long. It's not <laughs> 10 years like it used to be and you can draw down one tenth and then die. Now it's 30, 35 years, 40 years. So, Exactly. And with predictions that inflation will go up as well, you need to be able to grow your your capital base and your, and the income and returns it's producing to keep up with that. So the only way we know to do that is to buy growing assets. Some people use property and some people do it through companies. Um, in our view, as Jamie was saying, the, one of the best regions to get that growth at the moment and probably over the next 10 or 20 years is Asia. Uh, so I think Jamie mentioned Chow's portfolio manager of the Cooper Asia strategy. Um, the group manages about 13 billion, is that right? Yeah. Uh, and maybe it's a good point to introduce yourself and a bit of background on your career, how you ended up in Melbourne from yeah, New tell York that story, and other places. Fascinating. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Well, thank you for having me on the 
on the podcast. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity and hello again, everyone. Um, my name is Chao Ma and I manage the Asian equities portfolio for Cooper Investors. Um, maybe let me take sort of a small step back and, and give you a little bit of the backstory of both me personally and how I come across Cooper Investors. So, you know, on myself, I grew up in China. I spent the first 17 years of my life um, living in China in the, in the southern part. And I moved over to the U.S. for university and grad school and started off as an investment banker, um, first in New York. Um, and then later on, um, over the past 15 years, um, all I have been doing is public equities investing. Started off my career in large hedge funds based out in New York and quite quickly gravitated towards um, investing in Asia from a global um, funds perspective. And that's really relevant, I guess, in, in two ways. One is, you know, I like to say that, you know, I know what best in class look like um, in terms of management teams. And, and this really is to the core of what we do is the quality of management teams. And, and I'll really elaborate a lot on that topic because that's our bread and butter. People, so you, you and Peter Cooper would get along really well then. <laughs> well, that's actually the absolute common bond. Um, and what draw me to Cooper Investors. And, you know, I, I, I think it is very qualitative, but I actually believe that all of you, um, you know, in, on the program would understand what I said. When you sit across from someone who is just very good at their jobs and you sit across and sit in an organization, sit in the headquarter of a company with fantastic culture, when you just observe people's behavior, the energy, the, the way they treat each other, you, you, you can feel it in your bones. And that's really the, the X factor that we're looking for. And starting my career in New York, I knew what that feel like, um, meeting some of the best in class US companies. And I would say 10 years ago, I probably can't hand on heart and say, I can find 20 management teams in Asia that's as high quality as the ones in, in US or Europe. But today, across our own watch list, we found 100. And we're very confident in terms of people and culture and the integrity and the capability of these organizations. They're every bit as best in class as any of the American, Australian, and European companies. So that's been a massive change that I've had the fortune of observing over the past decade. I think you mentioned when we first met that you met Jack Ma when you were working in, I did. in New York. Was he I one of those people that... Correct. I actually met Jack way before Alibaba even went public. Um, so they, they raised quite a number of the private rounds um, before they, they went public in, in 2014. And I actually get the, get the pleasure of meeting both Jack and Joe um, in New York multiple times um, when they come and, and, and try to raise capital. So you know, that's a, a fascinating story on its own. But, you know, I think just back to sort of the second point of what I learned from, from, you know, starting off as a global fund and really spending a good half of my adult life in the U.S. is culturally I'm unbiased. And that's actually a really incredibly important part. You know, as we see the investors around the world getting quite divided into two camps, um, especially when it comes to, to Asia, to have that actual flexibility in the mindset, as in, I don't have a commitment to you know investing in China or investing in the US. To me, they are genuinely part of the culture in, in China that I passionately love. Um, same goes for the things in, in culturally American, but there are also things I cannot stand 
for both cultures. So just being a person, I think, just happened to to have a life experience that strike two regions and two, you know, very different systems really give me, I would say that a bit of an unbiased view. Um, and to us, it's all about allocating capital to the best risk adjusted opportunities. When we see fantastic opportunities in China, we pounce on it. When we believe that the risk adjusted returns do not justify investing, we have a lot of other opportunities outside of China to invest in. So I would so, say that's, yep. Does that, does that mean the fund starts, you know, if you were starting from cash, I know it's not today, um, is it built on regions first or is it built on quality of opportunities first? Because there's what, 12, 13 regions in Asia. How does that work in your mind? Is it uh, stock first? Is it region first? It, uh, how, how does... How, Talk us through the process of building a portfolio with the objective of getting exposure to Asia. Yeah, um, so it's absolutely stock first. So our bar is kept very high. Uh, we picked 35 companies out of probably 10,000 companies that we can buy. So in a lot of ways, the general direction of the Asian equity market um, how each country's GDP or even how an industry is doing is irrelevant. All we care about is finding the 35 best companies we can possibly find and put capital behind them and be very, very patient and very long-term. And this really ties back to, you know, one of the questions you guys open with is how Cooper investors think about investing. So, you know, Peter Cooper, which is the founder of our firm, started the company in 2001 with a really simple concept, which is in the longer term, the focused managers tend to outperform. And we, we and, and that's, it sounds really simple, but you know, to us that's, you know, probably have 200 different elements we actually evaluate a management on. And what we have tested over time, so we've done that in Australian equities, in global equities, in global small cap, in Australian small cap, and now Asia, is almost the more inefficient a market is, the more noise there is in a particular market, the better this particular investment philosophy works. So the two funds at Cooper, so the Asian fund has been around for 15 years. Um, the other funds roughly also between 10 and 15 years. The two funds over this period of time that perform the best at Cooper's is two funds. One is called Brunswick Fund, um, and that's mostly um, in Australia's small cap. Yep. One is the Asian equities fund. So we've actually proven to ourselves that this particular methodology, which is management first and long-term investing really work in these markets. You see a lot of big global managers kind of dabble in, in Asia. Is that good for, you know, markets over there or is it good for you? Is it create opportunity? You know, I can't, I probably can't. Do you mean the hands. big, big global funds, Drew? The big yeah, yeah. go anywhere and they where they'll go five percent. They'll add, you know, they'll add five to ten percent in China, but then all of a sudden they'll all say they're out. Um, is that is that good for capital flows and for your investment approach, or is it um, competition bad? Well, well, actually, um, dabbling is a fantastic word, and that's exactly <laughs> um, how I would describe a lot of the global funds, and that's precisely the wrong mentality when you invest in a market like Asia for two reasons. One is the dabbling um, mentality works with a very cyclical market, as in you are trying to time the cycle. You're trying to say, now it's cheap, let me get in, then it's expensive, let me get out. Um, that will work in you know, maybe the energy 
um, industry, maybe working in the commodity industry. But when you are thinking about a secular structural growth market, that is absolutely the wrong um, approach. So, you know, we think about long-term investing, which really means the time in market is incredibly important to not get out of the market on the wrong time, thinking we're so clever to time it. So we just take an entirely different approach. So what we believe is the headlines challenges will come all the time. And then they will come at different flavors from different directions. Frankly, we have no way of knowing where the next one is gonna come from. So, you know, over the past three years, our portfolio companies have endured first a trade war where people thought this is over between the US and China. <laughs> then COVID-19, um, again, is a the world is over uh, moment. And now, you know, apparently the headline is regulators are coming down and shutting down all the businesses. So every yes. year there was a flavor to it. Yes, over the past three years, this portfolio of companies have grown cash flow more than 15% per year. And then the portfolio have returned in terms of the total return to our investors, also roughly about 15% per year of return. So they are actually grow that the actual returns track the performance yep. of the companies incredibly well. So there's Maybe. been no, they call it PE expansion, right? There's been no real nope. PE expansion. They've just really grown earnings. Drew and I talk about noise all the time, right? They're, you can get so much noise in investment markets. It's not funny. Um, you know, the, the whole media industry lives on noise. A lot of broking firms lives live on noise. So to be a true long-term investor, it's, it's hard, right? There's, just, there's always noise out there. It's really hard. So Peter come up with, you know, one of our cultural values at, at Cooper's and, and cultural values actually is everything that drive our behavior and also drive the kind of cultures we're looking for in the companies we invest in. So there are five cultural values. One of them is called in the present. And what does it actually mean when you're an investor in the present is when we look at our portfolio companies, we are seeing their realities. We're not bringing the biases, the noise, the, the generalized thinking. So let me give you an example, which is really my favorite. Um, so there's this company called Senjo International, and the ticker is 2313 Hong Kong. And what does this company do? It is an apparel maker for athletic wear for Nike and Adidas. Not Lululemon? Um, not Lululemon, yeah. Although Lulu Drew, Drew's not. a massive fan of Lululemon. <laughs> Well, it, it, it is a really good point because as of now, they only produce for four customers. So that's Nike, Adidas, um, Puma, and um, Uniqlo in Japan. And Lululemon, Under Armour would have a beaten path to its store. They would love to work with Senjo, but Senjo does not have the capacity for them. Mm. Um, so if you are coming from the angle of the scary headline, so first of all, you're going to have the US and China trade war. So you're a Chinese company making apparel for American companies, that's terrible. Then you have COVID-19 where the factories are shut down. Well, that's awful. And now you have the supply chain disruptions globally when the ports are closed and no container. How in the world are you going to navigate that? Well, I will tell you what Shenzhou did, which is really fascinating. Three years ago, when no one was thinking about this global supply chain issue, they start building up fully vertical factories in Vietnam and Cambodia. 
It's the only apparel manufacturer in the entire world that has proper substantial production bases in China, Cambodia, Vietnam, which means if the port is closed in one country or the supply chain is disrupted in one country, they can just move that capacity to the other two. And they can ship to any country from these production bases. No one else has it. Senjo is the first one that has it. The second one is they are making sure their own operations is so digitized and use so much technology. And you know, when we're thinking about cloth cutting, most of the factories are still using skilled labor to sort of cut it in a certain angle. For Senjo, it's all computerized, it's all module-based. What does that mean? Well, when Nike and Adidas are still trying to come up with new designs and new products while the supply chain is in disarray, Senjo is the only one that can adapt to these new designs produce these new products in season, in big batches, in big scale, and be able to ship globally. So that the poor closure will have a little bit of minimum, I would say, disruption. But over the longer period of time, Central actually just becomes such a, a trustworthy partner. So we saw its market share expand. Um, substantially over the past three years. And then all these different massive headline um, disruptions just didn't really stop the company for a beat. And how did we pick Senjo? Um, you know, and, and you know, we're definitely not that brilliant to foresee all these challenges. We picked it because it was led by one of the best founders we know. And this guy started off working at a sweatshop, like a proper sweatshop himself. Is that right? Um, and later on, he started this clothing manufacturing and with the with the basis that he wants to build something that's using modern technology, give the workers better environment. So he knows everything about this industry. And we were investing in him. We probably bought this stock about eight, nine years ago. We just knew whatever challenges this industry is going to see this particular founder is going to navigate it a lot better than everybody else. And he actually delivered far better than our own expectations. And there's probably, I think we discussed uh, when we first met a few years ago, which was the prevalence of SOEs in, in China and listed markets still. How do you, how do you, uh, do you invest in SOEs? How do you it's, assess it's that, Drew. So state-owned enterprises or state-run or some sort of state ownership? So I think some of the biggest Chinese companies are state-owned effectively. Um, yeah. uh, do you exclude them? Are there certain sectors you focus on? That's, that's probably the biggest, you know, whenever we talk about regulation, but the US is trying to regulate their companies the same as China is. It just seems to be reflected more negatively in, in China because they can actually implement it. Um, whereas everything gets stuck in Congress in the US. But what's, what's the kind of target base of companies um, and how prevalent are SOEs? Yeah, so I mean, look, we don't have um, we don't have an exclusion of SOEs um, per se. Hmm. We don't currently own any SOEs. Um, so about seventy percent, seven zero. So two more than two thirds of everything we own, they are run by either the founders or what we call owner operators, which is the management team personally have their personal wealth um, aligned with the shareholders and. and what we have found is um, there, there are probably a few things. One is we don't invest with a company unless we can have face-to-face -face meetings like what, what we are having now um, as a proper conversation to the key decision maker. So everything we invest in, we insist on having multiple conversations with either the CEO or chairman of the board or the executive chairman. So the, the ultimate founder slash owner operator. So those conversations are 
much harder to have when it's a state-owned enterprises. Um, you know, for, for two reasons. One is the top management tend to rotate a lot faster. So, you know, before we can even build a proper relationship with them, they get rotated out um, because they're really government appointees. Um, and the second one, just, just on the cultural perspective, um, and by the way, if one day the SOE reform really produced the kind of culture we're looking for, we won't hesitate to invest with them. But as of now, the cultural attributes that we're looking for, the first word is alignment, is we want the employees, their motivation, their personal drive to be aligned with the shareholders. And, and when we observe the SOE culture, I would say that the first word that describes their culture is probably more political. You demand the same level of quality from a Chinese company as you do from an Australian or a US. Same level of governance. Governance, and yeah. Absolutely. Um, so the appearances um, of the governance might look different. So, you know, in, in, the, in the US and Australia, when you start looking for governance, the first thing is you want to find an independent board. Um, yeah. And then next thing you want to find, you want to find half of the board members being women. So I would say these are almost appearances of the governance. When we look at a, a board in Asia, just because the heavy founder-led and, and family ownership, very hard to find truly independent board. That being said, it doesn't mean that the company's culture is, is, is you know, sure. dictatorial. It doesn't mean that the owner, you know, calls the shots. So what we love to see is very strong founder, his personality, the usual humble, um, open, progressive, become part of the organizational culture, but also a lot of great professional managers that sort of step in to the company and they bring in sort of the professionalism, the transparency, the integrity. So when we see a combination of the both for, for these two, then, you know, those will be some of the cultural attributes we really like. Is that hard, Chow? Is that hard to because CEOs and we talked to talked about this uh, a little bit in in this series already, but the characteristics of a successful CEO, especially a growth orientated CEO, is really they're really interesting in a way. Um, you know, and you can use words like um, tendency to be sociopaths and you know control freaks and a whole heap of different things. That doesn't mean that they're not going to be successful, but they have got fantastic personalities to come into meetings with you and tell you what you want to hear, right? Um, they're, they're incredibly smart people and mm. smart people know how to pat the dog the right way at the right time. Yeah. And you, you've, you've been doing it. Peter's been doing it for like 30 years. You must have developed a whole heap of, you know, subtle assessment tools of senior management that you know is unique to coopers or um is there anything you can pass on to us about how, how to do that um you know it is it, it, we did um uh, bring in the the cia lie detectors to give us a session and all that and, <laughs> and, and, and frankly it didn't add a whole lot of value yeah. um, a, a good ceo will pass a lie detector they, they will pass it with fine colors um, so, so we, we don't have any tricks. So we yeah. only have two things we do. Um, one is we meet more than one person, usually more than two people from the organization. Um, so it sounds really simple, but it's really easy for one person to spin the story and say, our culture is yada, 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 yada. Much harder 
when you hear it from three or four people from the same organization. So what we what we insist on doing is, and it takes a lot of, um, you know, the second leg of our culture is intentionality, is when you build a corporate network, it's easy to say, oh, we have 500, you know, contacts in Asia. Well, how this 500 contacts is organized and how you high grade this contact network is name of the game. So what we started doing is every relationship we have with a company, we started with the investor relations person. Um, and that's the gatekeeper to management. And every investor start with the same person. They usually stop at the investor relations person, maybe make it to the CFO. But we showed up in investors um, director's office three months later. We showed up again, and then we politely asked for the CFO. Then we speak to the CFO for about you know two to three quarters. Then we politely ask for the CEO. Showing up consistently over a long period of time advanced that relationship. And then we start having about four to five people that we met in the organization. Then we take a step back and say, if we think this is the particular culture that this organization have, do they all exhibit the same characteristic? Do we see the common threats? So that become a very interesting observation. So there's really no, I would say, sort of sophisticated tricks. Um, it's really just about observing from multiple people and over a long period of time and not get dazzled by one person, one meeting. And how many people that are dabbling in Asia kind of do that level of due diligence and meetings? You know, everyone says we've well, met management, but it's a lot of it seems right. to be conferences or... Everyone says that, right? But uh, I've been involved with listed companies before and the amount of people that actually, you know, engage properly from a funds management perspective is, is compared to how many say they engage is, you know, was chalk and cheese. Um, and I'm sure, as Drew said, your competitors all say, oh, we do, you know, 752 company visits per year but what you know we have a lot of respect for peter and coopers is you know doing the hard work meeting the people turning up traveling to asia is you know is in your dna isn't it uh, yeah it, it really is and and there was really nothing like it you know you know one of our first well, one of my favorite thing to do is i we always make sure we eat at the company cafeteria um, and and it's something just that simple. We, yep. we make sure we go eat the same food um, yep. as employees do. Then you start watching if the senior managers are sitting with everyone else. Uh, um, yeah. You start seeing, so. you know, do people look relaxed and happy and confident? Um, or do they look sort of stressed and scared? Um, just that you have <laughs> I like it. Like a high school lunch room. Have you ever had food poisoning? Absolutely. And then you see them <laughs> get haste, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that it's, 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 it's really simple. And, you know, I think half of the game is just to show up. And, and frankly, we were, we loved it. Um, when global large managers start saying China is uninvestable, um, in our head, we just say, wow, uh, first of all, that create really um, inefficiencies in the market that, you know, we can, we, we can definitely use for our investors. Secondly is, you know, whoever does the investor relations or CFO, that's mm. trying to get you a meeting with the CEO, you practically just shut the door um, mm. because which, which Asian CEO is gonna meet with an investor who come from a firm that openly said, you know, we wanna pull back mm. from Asia, we don't wanna invest anymore. So I think this, it, it's just about a long-term consistent commitment. And, and, you know, if I have to say it, sometimes we're completely transparent, authenticity, another um, cultural attribute 
sometimes even when we don't currently own the shares of a particular company, but we still showed up. We don't let our sure, research yeah. work done just because we currently do not own this particular company. And management really appreciate that. They appreciate you taking the time and doing the hard work, even though you might not be a current shareholder. What about when you sell that stock, Chow? If you go, okay, it's overvalued or there's a hiccup coming up for the next 18 months and I don't want my clients to be exposed to that. Do you keep revisiting even the stocks you sell, the management of them? If you think potentially you might invest again, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so the way we think about research um, is quite different. Um, so we have about 110 companies on what we call the level one watch list. And this is the 100 management team that I spoke about earlier that we think they're the best in class in their own industry. Yep. At any particular point in time, we own the 35 best ones out of this 110. Hmm. But the research intensity on this 110 companies do not change just because we own the stock now versus, you know, we, we might consider owning it later. So it's still four times a year um, of interaction with management team with different management team members. So we're not going back to the same IR and speak to them four times. Um, and it continues model update, refresh, continue the dialogue with management. Um, and just to take a step further, even when we don't own a company, we actually do a lot of proactive engagement. Sometimes we will tell management very honestly why currently we do not own a stock or why we sell the stock. Um, and, you know, if this is a particular risk or this is a particular part of the governance structure that we would like to see that change, we also make it um, very compelling and, and very straightforward for them. I've got a, got a two-pronged question for you. The, the first one is, is there anything you won't invest in? Are there sector, I know it's growth strategy, I know there, what won't you invest in and where are you really targeting? Where's your portfolio kind of focused? Yeah. And for Asia, yeah. Yeah, so um, really simple answer that we don't invest in things we don't understand. Um, and it's a bit of a tongue in cheek, but that's generally, you know, what we think. Um, you know, this is the great quote by Warren Buffett that, that I love. Um, and he basically said, risks come from not knowing what you're doing. Um, and we completely just believe in that particular credo. So about 80% of our fund um, invested just across about three, you know, fairly deep sectors. And these are the best in class consumer brands. These are the technology software and hardware. And lastly, it's the private healthcare um, service providers. Um, and almost all the research meetings we do, we really go deeper and deeper into these three verticals. Um, in each verticals, we probably have quite 20 to 30 uh, management teams that we think is very high um, quality that could really be, you know, the most credible channel chats um, on, 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 a, on a regular basis. And to us, this is the only way of actually understanding what's happening on the ground is, is you don't just own a particular cluster of company, you, you know, every company we own, we also have about five or six peers that we know very, very mm -hmm. well. Um, so when something happens in a particular industry, we know. So, you know, just go back to Sanjo, uh, which is a sportswear manufacturing. So sportswear is one of the brand um, that we really like. So what we end up doing work on is we know all the manufacturings on the upstream that's making the apparel. We know all the brands, the big ones in the world, both uh, international and in Asia. So we're talking about Nike, Adidas. We're also talking about Leaning and Anta in China. And then we also 
um, do a lot of deep work around the retailers that end mm. up running a lot of these shops. Um, and then finally, of course, on the e-commerce um, site, we know sort of, you know, which e-commerce sites sell the most of these sportswear. So for us, the, the visibility really needs to come from the entire supply chain. And when you go deep on every step, that's when, you know, we start seeing the holistic picture of what's really happening. So you're not really touching commodity companies, steel mills, all these sort of sectors. No, 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 we don't. To, yeah. And and the the sectors you're focusing on, so they're very consumer focused. That's is that all about the demographics and the the kind of demographic tail, tailwind this this middle class throughout all of Asia. Um, it's a good question. I would think it it probably started off um, with with the demographics tailwind, but frankly, um, I can tell you ten companies where investors lose their shirts on. Um, <laughs> that is that is in the middle class um, consumer space. So I think. <laughs> You know, 10, 15 years ago, you can probably invest in Asia with a very top-down view and say, okay, I want to do China, India, consumer. You close your eyes, buy a few stocks, you make money. Mm. Those times are long gone. The markets have become so deep and so nuanced that the winners and losers are demarcating very, very fast. So this is not about just you know, middle-class consumer, more and more of them. Therefore, they're going to buy more of everything. They're not going to buy more of everything. They're going to buy the things that suit their current needs, that really is suitable for their particular lifestyle. And the companies that have the deep insights into the consumer and are willing to adapt and change with the consumers, those are going to be massive winners. And the more excitingly, they're going to be massive winners, no matter how... Um, how slow or how fast a particular company's or a particular country's GDP grow. So what we love to think about is think about the stock of PNG, think about a stock of Domino's, think about a stock of Walmart. Um, these are massive stocks over the past 30 years when on average the US GDP growth is about 3%. So what they are doing is they fast consolidate the industry, they gain lots of market share and they consistently innovate. And those are the things we're looking for for the Asian companies today. And how important is it to understand the culture in Asia when it comes to identifying those themes? I think you've discussed something like the transition, not necessarily from Nike, but American brands towards domestic brands. Yeah. Um, you know, investing from you know, anyone in someone in New York sitting at their desk investing in emerging markets will say there's great, you know, demographic. But what about is it how important is it knowing the the region to assess those opportunities it's incredibly important for the simple reason that the region is probably the most dynamic of any of the markets in the world it is the fastest yeah. growing but it's also the most dynamic so the consumer um, preferences change very quickly um, from year to year and you know we used to go when we could travel we used to go to china every three months and it's not uncommon for me to go see a company that I saw three months ago. And then when they started talking, I look around and say, am I in the wrong office? <laughs> because this just sounds like in a completely different company. Mm. Um, and, and that's really how fast things change on the ground. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't back the company. Actually, on average, we hold the stock for five years. It just means that we're looking for the companies that could adapt to these trends um, on the ground a lot faster than, than, than its uh, competitors. And for us to, you know, number one, see the management team, consistent interaction, two is just to show up, that's also incredibly important. So, you know, India is another interesting example. So during the pandemic, we actually had our Indian analysts live in Mumbai um, because 
you know, the, the information flow in and out from China is quite efficient, a bit of a harder um, thing on, on India. So we actually have somebody on the ground. Um, so that's really the, the length that we would go um, to, to really get the, the proper fresh on the ground um, trends. And it's kind of, China's kind of described the, the millennials as being digitally native. <laughs> I should be the one answering this, but how, how different is, you know, the youth over there compared to the rest of the world? Is it, Are you uh, saying because you think you're young? Is that, is I'm that, old. Did you hear that? <laughs> Jeff? We're gonna have some comedy on here. I'm not on TikTok, so is that the best way to start? Oh, you you, you should. It's really fun. Um, <laughs> I mean, young people is a really interesting topic. So we are developing a little bit of a cluster, what we call the Gen Z um, cluster within the portfolio, and it's definitely a a different way of thinking and a different way of organizing as a company to really address the young consumer. So for example, um, the company, the, 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 the one of the common characteristics of this company in this little Gen Z cluster is on average, their, um, the average age of their employees is below 30 years old. And that doesn't mean that, you know, once you're above 30, they fire you. What they actually <laughs> meant is they just hire a lot of young people. Sure. Uh, and that's why the average age really come down. And, and to them, there's no replacement. There's no replacement to have a young team that to, to understand a young consumer. So, so sure. I think that that is really, really on the people and culture front. Um, what's really interesting. Um, what young people really want um, globally is actually quite consistent. Um, and they want short videos. They like video games. Um, they want brands that are sustainable, um, and they want the materials to be ethically sourced. That's actually really, really consistent. Um, Last summer, across the world, hmm. um, and you know, uh, as investors, you you have to respect that, and you have to understand this is where the world is going. So the debate yep. on if ESG matter, I mean, that's over. If you just look at any twenty-year-olds today, you understand that's where the world is going. Better get on board. So the days of, you know, saying, I want to find the afterpay of China are kind of long gone. It's not just find something that worked in the US and find the comparison over there. It's a lot more on the ground. and It's, it's a lot more nuanced. Um, and that really come back to, you know, the whole in the moment, be present, you know, cultural value is, is when we look at a company, it's almost the lazy way is to say, oh, this is the so-and-so of China. This is the Baidu or this is the... Of, of China. This is the Facebook of India. Yeah. Well, that's it's a lazy way to explain it. That is very lazy and quite generalized. Um, what we have observed is just because Google worked in the US doesn't mean Baidu works in China. Hmm. Um, just, just because eBay didn't quite make it in the US doesn't mean that they won't make it in India. So, you know, to us, it's all about looking at the realities of the companies, look hmm. at the proper context and, and observe the consumers. Um, so, you know, to us, that people, you know, Peter loves saying observation, not prediction. And that's really what we meant. It's all about observing the realities mm. and see them in the present. Yep. You, you go, Jamie. Uh, I'm just reflecting on this whole conversation. I'm, I'm right back to what you said before about um, earnings per share of your companies over the last three years has been 15% per annum, which is a phenomenal rate if you think about it. Is that, do you think that that's what Asia, for our clients, you know, the, the, is, is that what Asia represents? This ability to grow for the next 10 years at a compounded rate with a select group of 
um, investments or stocks, which is different to what potentially they hold elsewhere in their portfolio? And two or three times the global economy, it sounds like too. Hmm. I think it, it, it certainly is part of it. Um, is I would say this is a region where you can still, if you pick the good companies, um, not, not generalize for, for everything, but if you pick the right management team and the right companies, you can still sort of get that 15% um, you know, cash flow growth in the next five years quite sustainably, and you're paying a multiple that's below 30, um, 30 times on average. So across you're not, the portfolio, you're not paying way up for it. We are paying 20 something times for, yeah. for this group of earnings growth. So that's the one element that's really exciting. The second one, which is sort of probably not talked about enough is, you know, at some point in the next 10 years, a lot of these companies will become dividend cash flow machines. So, you know, if you think about the, the earnings growth at 13, uh, at about 15%, sure. the actual return on capital um, for a lot of these companies, is north of 20%. Yep. That's why they keep plowing the capital back to the business because mm. they're generating incredibly high returns. But at mm. some point, when the market mature, when the business mature, that incremental return will come down. And the fantastic thing about a founder-led business is that the founder <laughs> is the majority shareholder. So Always back self-interest, Chow. Always well, back absolutely. self-interest. Absolutely. <laughs> but once that founder starts seeing the return on my incremental capital drops up, he's the first one that put up mm. his hand and say, let's increase the dividend payout. So we actually think a lot of these companies, once they enter sort of the, the mature stage, are going to be machines for cash flow and dividend. Is there many female, you used the word he um, before, is there many female-led organizations in Asia? Is that, you know, we hear of diversity on board um, and you know, Or lack of. Or <laughs> lack of, yeah. But, you know, did you find um, uh, your women-led businesses, especially in that younger in Asia and do, do you see them through a different lens or the same type of lens as you you would a traditional you know, male founder um yeah so you know it's 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 an interesting question um and, and we do to answer your question we do have female-led businesses um mm. and even in businesses where um there are still the founder is male um I almost think every single one of, of our business have a female who's probably top three in the senior management, um, the, the Cheryl Sandberg sort of equivalent of these yep. companies. Um, and, and, you know, Asia is quite different. Um, China in particular, you know, is a bit of a cultural context. So, and, and I'm that generation. So you can think about one child policy. Yeah. Um, that started mm. in the, the late 70s, early 80s, which is the, the people that's in between their 30s and 40s today in China, the newer generation of management. Um, the family only has one chance, which is, you know, one child. Uh, and, and the educational resources are really poured into this generation of girls because mm. there is no, mm. no other choice. Sure. Um, and, it, and not just on the education, the girls um, were also really developed as quite independent and, and, and progressive, um, which is causing a bit of a problem with the birth rates um, of the country. And <laughs> but if you think about the attitude um, yep. of, of the younger females in Asia, I would say um, incredibly ambitious, very capable. Um, and we love, we love seeing them succeed. Every, every time we talk about an Asia fund or every, every time an Asian fund is mentioned, the conversation goes straight to China. Um, tell, tell us about a region that 
our um, listeners probably don't know much about and something that excites you in terms of what's happening there or businesses there rather than China? Um, India. We love India. Um, and and we love India not because, you know, we think India is China just five years behind. I, I also think, you know, that's, that's a pretty lazy term, yeah. generalization. We love India because the type of quality businesses we can find mm. um, in India blow our mind. Mm. Um, and it's just in terms of the, the capability, the transparency, the long tenure, the track record, the entrepreneurial drive of the Indian management teams, we absolutely love it. Um, we also say we follow the people. Um, so there was a lot of people exchange, um, which means sort of Indian um, and China as well. Um, Chinese students who were educated in America and Europe and Australia have worked in Western organizations, then they return to their home countries and become senior management. We also sure. really like that, that, that element. You also see a lot of that in, in India. Um, the founders are also still young. Um, which we also like. So, mm. you know, the difficulty of the some of the Southeast Asian um, companies is they're really the third and fourth generation um, mm. of founding family. And there was the family field, there's the question on the qualification sure. of the particular manager. So that's actually the kind of founder led where the family businesses we don't get involved in. We mm. love first generation founders. Um, and then the Indian founders are still young, um, yep. still vibrant, very much involved. And so, you know, the type of, quality management teams. Um, it, we see a lot of that in India. Have you got a stock, uh, Indian stock that you kind of go, oh, this is interesting for, for our listeners? Sure. Um, so the, you know, one of the stocks we really like um, is Jubilant Foodworks. Um, and this is the master franchisee for Domino's Pizza in India. Oh, really? Okay. Um, and then if you think about, you know, the, if I just give you sort of a, a quick, uh, comparison sure. of how underpenetrated the the what we call the the quick service restaurant the QSR which is really just a fast food casual food chain. Yep. So Domino's in India is by far the biggest chain, and in the country of you know call it 1.5 billion people, it has 1,200 stores. That's it. Um, KFC in China has 8,000. And, and counting. Mm. Um, so it, it just shows you the, the incredible lack of food um, that is sort of organized, that's clean, that's a high standard of hygiene. Um, Founder-led, as in the brothers founded the business, brought in a professional management team from uh, Hindustan Unilever, which is by far the best consumer company in India. So fantastic track record on the sure. management team, long tenure, everything. Um, they are following a lot of the sort of McDonald's and, and, and um, KFC footsteps in, into going digital. Um, so digital capabilities, best in class, mm. delivery, big part of the business. And now the exciting part is they're taking what they learned running Domino's and into three or four smaller brands. Um, and we actually think this is going to be not a Domino's company. It's going to be sort of a portfolio of, of brands and really become what they call a food tech company. Yeah. Fabulous. You probably have, we probably have to ask the question around regulation and you know crackdown is used a lot. Um, the more you kind of read, it seems not as surprising when it occurs. The timing seems surprising, but the, the the areas that have been targeted by governments is that something that concerns you? You see opportunity in it, or just as you said before, requires more understanding of 
of what's going on in, in the region? Absolutely. Um, so we, we spend a lot of time thinking about regulation. Um, so I would say, you know, broadly, the first thing we we'll say is we think it's a cyclical, not a structural um, changes. And what we actually mean is, you know, regulations really ebb and flow for every industry. So it's impossible to find an industry where there's no regulatory impact. Um, the important thing is to understand why the absence flow happened. So, you know, the, the, the headlines are really around the regulation changes in the technology industry in China. Um, but if you actually look at the realities of it, before this round of regulation is the great wild west. Um, there was no anti-monopoly regulation. So, you know, a company with a market share of 40% could freely merge with another company with a market share of 45%. And together they become practically a monopoly. No regulatory approval is even needed. Um, the minority um, internet users protection um, because, because the young people are so digitally native. And by the way, mm. Facebook and Instagram is being grilled by Congress as we speak. Every, for every day it's true. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so all these things now have been clearly regulated. Um, so there are four areas. So, you know, the, the, the regulations are actually quite consistently targeting. One is the protection of the gig workers, so delivery workers, Uber drivers, their contractors, not employees, but their rights still needs to be protected. There was the anti-monopoly. You cannot be anti-competitive in your practices. There was the protection of minor um, and, and internet users, you know, what, what they can and cannot do. And then finally is the protection of user privacy. Um, and, and, you know, to put plainly, this is really to say just because you give your information to one app doesn't mean that they can bombard you with five different apps and, mm -hmm. and, and you know, transfer your information that way. We would argue all these regulations are probably long overdue. Sure. Um, the pace that you come out, like Drew, you know, alluded to, and the decisiveness, how that was, that was um, come out, definitely rocked the market who, you know, have all these sensational headlines. But if you look under the hood, we actually think all these regulations are probably much needed. The second one is, you know, and go back to the best in class management team angle. Not all companies are positioned the same just because there was an industry wide regulation. What we meant is the best position companies, which in this case, we think Tencent is one of the best position ones. Mm. They, their corporate culture of humility, um, flying under the radar of not making a lot of noises, keeping their head down has really served them well when you know there was, there was a lot of regulatory noise. The second one is if you watch what, what Tencent is doing, they don't advertise it, they don't talk about it publicly, but it's fantastic to see how they really galvanize their international business. So as of now, as we speak, half of all Tencent's incremental revenue growth is coming from the international businesses. I mean, that's how significant it's really become. For our listeners, in there, isn't there? For our listeners, do you want to just give a quick summation of what Tencent is? Sure. Um, so we started off as a, a social network. So, you know, similar to Facebook, but all on the mobile. Um, yep. It owns the omnipresent app called WeChat that we've all seen, um, QR codes. Um, yep. And it also has a very large computer gaming business, a very big payments business. Okay. Um, so it's definitely a little bit of a, a tech conglomerate that has quite a number of these consumer businesses. And now is really making foray into um, international markets. Yeah. I had one kind of last question. If you can, sure. I, I read somewhere that it's actually much more difficult 
to list a company in Asia than it than it can be in on the Nasdaq. So I think there was a float that was pulled last year, and a lot of it was about not going through the processes in Asia and China that can be more stringent. Is that is that, is, is correct. that correct? Can you prove? Yeah. Can you tell? Oh, the approval processes probably still run longer than one year um, to be listed mm. as a public listed company. So that's why quite a number oh, of the companies choose four to... Weeks. Not three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> not three weeks. Um, and, and, the, and the regulatory disclosure, um, the requirements also very high. Um, and this is a perfect plug for our portfolio holding, which is Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Um, yep. So, you know, to us, it just offer the perfect blend of, you know, both still being closer to the home market so your investors actually understand your product um, and also fast approval for IPOs and access to international currency. So that was kind of, what was, it was a, that float that was pulled last year where it was all about China cracking down, but it was really, they didn't, didn't try to list on their own market and went elsewhere and just got to market and got money effectively. <laughs> was it, Definitely really not the kind of management and culture we're looking for. Chow, we're, we're running out of time, but um, on behalf of Drew and I uh, and our listeners, thanks for giving up your time and exploring um, and explaining uh, a lot more about what your fund does and Asia as a whole. We, we've really enjoyed it. Um, thanks very much. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me. Thanks, John. And for our listeners, um, uh, really important. Um, I, I think a really important podcast to understand why Drew and I are, are so passionate about overweighting portfolios to Asia and overweighting, you know, the other being small caps. Um, so, you know, that, that has uh, stood our portfolios in great stead um, historically. And I think it will uh, make sure that, you know, that we, we can drive the G side of a portfolio over the next 10 years. So thanks everyone. See you next time. Cheers.